Miles Stewart knows triathlon. Over 15 years, he made the national team, which is a feat that'll never, ever be repeated, not in this day and age. He's important because he's now the CEO of Triathlon Australia, and it means he's got an opinion, but also means he's got an informed opinion about how the sport's going, what's going to happen going forward in this time. So let's sit down and have a chat with Miles Stewart. Miles Stewart, uh, joining us in a really odd time in triathlon. We've been sort of saying this to all of our guests recently that it is just, it is real weird, but uh, thanks for hopping on. Thank you, Phil. Nice to chat. Uh, big, big, I guess lots of things going on at the moment. We want to pick apart a few of them, but um, before we get to sort of the current day, um, the racing early days in the 80s and 90s and, and you being one of the trailblazers for that, um, I guess a lot of young pros coming out of Australia now just sort of walk the path that you beat. That was a pretty remarkable time for you and and the likes of Welshy and and Brad Bevan and uh, Steve Foster, et cetera. Yeah, well, they were fantastic times for the sport. I mean, you know, going to America as young guys and you know mixing it up with the pros over there that were you know before that only reading about in magazines. It was it was a pretty cool time. And then the formation of the ITU, you know, um, the World Championships being official. Um, you know, Olympic Games coming around. It was just, it was just so great to watch a, a really young sport grow so quickly into what it was, and uh, and with that came a lot of changes, right? So you um, saw a lot, though. You would have seen a lot, wouldn't you? I mean, when you when you guys first went over there, you know, back in by way back when, and again, you know, some folks listening might not have been even aware of the sport, but. There's some real characters, weren't there? There were some real, especially the Americans as well. I love the the Harold Robinsons and the Jimmy Riccatellos and the uh, Andrew McNaughtons and the Kenny Souzas and all these guys, the George Pierce out of the, the duathlon world. And then there was yourself and Simon Skillicorn and uh, Welshie, et cetera. Going over there, was uh, were you looked on as just, you know, like a sideshow? Was it all about the Americans? And then when you guys started winning races, what was that like? Oh, well, you know, I think we had no idea. You know, we, we were reading magazines. We thought these guys were 10 foot tall and bulletproof and jump buildings. And then <laughs> and then Steve Foster went over there and won Chicago Triathlon. We're like, hang on. <laughs> you know, if Steve can win, I know how I go against Steve. I reckon, you know, there might be an opportunity for us to, to race over there. So the next year, sort of, we all bailed over, Welshie, Brad, and myself. Um, first race for Chicago, USTS. Like I say, things I only ever read about. I was 18 years old. Uh, got off the plane two days before the race, felt terrible, got off the bike 17th, ran in the tent, had a journalist, Mike Plant, talk to me before the race. He goes, how do you think you'll go? I said, oh, you know, I'd like to get top 10. He writes his story, cocky young Australian kid thinks he's going to get top 10 in the SS <laughs> race, right? I got 10th. I always felt terrible the whole day. Had an okay run, but everything else just felt like like terrible. And uh, and he comes up to me after the race. He goes, oh, man, you must be so happy, you know, like you, you said you get top 10 and you did. I was like, honestly, if I can get top 10 feeling how I felt today, I'm going to I'm gonna win the next race, right? <laughs> so, of course, here he goes again. Bloody kid from Australia. Things are yeah. going win, you know, and it was two weeks later. It was USTS Vermont. And uh, fortunately, myself, Jimmy Riccatello, uh, got away on the bike. We had a two and a half minute lead and I won the race by two and a half minutes. So um, I think from there very quickly, they realized that we were kind of serious and fairly competitive. And what a what a time that was, not it? When all the USTS races and the Bud Light series, et cetera, all that was in its 
absolute infancy, but still flying over there, obviously given the population, et cetera. Um, and then you come back here to Australia and there was also a really vibrant scene as well. Big races like Nepean, et cetera, um, Frankston. Yeah. Um, series, yeah. We, we were lucky, you know. We, we got to chase summer for a long time, um, yeah. whether it be Europe, America or Australia. Uh, we got to do some awesome races. But, yeah, I mean, obviously that and the Formula One series in Australia were, were really big at the time. And, um, you know, that, that made us a bit of a household name here, which is obviously something lacking from the sport today, but something we were really lucky to be a part of at the time. It seemed to have it seemed to have gone okay, didn't it? In when you came back to Australia in the, on on television, there's all talk about you know TV rights, obviously, and 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 how television promotes a sport, etc. Obviously, internet wasn't around in those days, but certainly you guys had a, a really nice little backstop with the Uncle Toby's Iron Man series, which is Surf Life Saving, and then mm. you guys would come on as well, and it would it was kind of that made for television style of racing, which everyone really got behind, and then adding your personalities in sort of really made the sport, didn't it? Yeah, well, there was a few personalities like Welsh and that. So it was plenty of there, Macca and myself. And um, it was fun racing, Chippy Slater, you know, yeah. all the guys there. But the racing, I, I, you know, if anyone asks me, it's the hardest racing I've ever done in my life. Like it was so fast, it was so hard. And, um, you know, you had to have skills at all three, le- a swim, bike, and run. Otherwise, you were not competitive. And, you know, there's there's many a fantastic trial that has been lapped in the Formula One race. So, um, yeah. They were great fun. They were really hard, and they were good money earners. And yeah, prime time TV. You couldn't you couldn't ask for anything more. No, it certainly was um, a golden era, wasn't it? In uh, in that time, and and heading back to the states and racing the likes of, I mean, we the beauty about guys like Welshie and and Mark Allen, et cetera, was that they would race down to the USTS races, the Olympic distance. And then they would, you know, obviously ratchet up for Ironman, et cetera. But um, coming up against guys like uh, Mark Allen when he was absolutely in his prime. I think yeah. he, him and Mike Pig, Mike Pig's one who I don't think gets enough recognition ab- about just how of a supremely dominant athlete he was. And you would have run up against him. In fact, in 91, oh, yeah. you ran up against him as well. But yeah. I'll get to that. But you certainly would have seen him like dominating in that era. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and uh, yeah, he didn't get the same um, probably credit as the big four at the time, I suppose. But to be honest, when he was on the start line, I think he was the one that most people worried about the most. And you know, getting to ninety one, he hadn't lost a race in two years in Olympic distance, mm. and then went into the world champs as the absolute standout favourite. And uh, you know, his bike riding was phenomenal, a bit better than his run. His swim was strong. His bike was just off the charts, and his run was strong. But you know. When you don't lose a race for two years or twenty something races, you, you you're pretty competitive. <laughs> did you did you talk to him? Was he a, was he a talker? Was he you know? I mean, these days in triathlon, everyone seems to be you know. There's a lot of backslapping and high fives, etc. There's not yeah. a lot of rivalries that you can name in those days. I mean, everyone sort of had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, which was awesome because the racing was great. And I don't want to sort of say that there was any difference. It's a different era. But was Mike Pig any sort of character, or was he just pretty he, pretty straight up? I think he was quite out there. Like I, I, I remember Spawn Anderson slapped him in the face at the back of the World Champs '91 um, medal presentation. He got wasn't allowed to go up on stage and get his medal. So, you know, we weren't. It wasn't the most. Uh, it was probably a bit more rivalry back then there is today. Like everyone's all yeah. nice people these days, but back then people actually had a bit of a mouth or a bit of a go at people, and um, yeah, that one got out of control. Oh right, because <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh... The fact that he ran a pink disc on the solid disc on the back of his big with pig power written on it yeah. kind of said something about the dude. Hey, he was definitely out there, mate. But uh, what a bike rider he was, though. Like, I came from cycling, you know, I, yeah. I still hold a national record on the track. And man, some of the bike rides he went past me like I was nailed to the floor. So, 
He was pretty <laughs> impressive. And I knew, like, when I was in the 91 Worlds, uh, I had a pretty good swim and I felt really good on the bike and I was catching people left, right and centre. And I was waiting for him to come because I knew he would. And when he finally caught up at the 10K mark, he was just going like, you know, half a kilometre an hour faster than I was. And I was like, yeah, I've got you today. You're not going anywhere. You yeah. Know, I'd done that same course with him a year before when he rode past me so quick, I spun around three times. Like, <laughs> And I was, I was like, yeah, I'm on today. He's not he's not going to get away from me today. But that run was, I mean, that run is is in Australian triathlon folklore. I mean, there was the four of you going out, Rick Wells, yourself. Um, who was the other guy missing? Pig. And Pete, That's yeah. the one, Big Howard mm. Robinson, and it was just you know that it was almost like I kind of look at it and knowing and seen you race, you know, like you had a kick like a mule. Your last two hundred meters could be unleashed, um, and it was almost like you know when when Shane Warne used to bowl and the whole country knew the flipper was coming, you know. <laughs> but it's easy for me to sit in the cheap seats and say that when you're in that run and you're running literally for the race of your life in '91 for the world title. I mean, that's a completely different animal. How was it for you? Were you always just going to plan and sit and wait or was it just uh, something that unfolded? Actually, no. Like I, I remember I did a duathlon with Tim Bentley about two weeks before the race and for some reason they didn't have a turnaround marker in the run. So we just kept running flat out trying to kill each other for like 18 kilometers <laughs> instead of seven or eight. So because there was no turnaround. So I was actually, re- I don't know, I felt really tired that day running and I normally would have considered I could run away from those two. So um, really... Um, I was a bit surprised to be there, but I just didn't feel that great coming off the bike. And it was a sub-54 bike ride, so we rode really hard. Um, but I, I, yeah, I had 100%, 100% success rate with sprint finishes. So I did feel at the halfway mark like it was probably more for them to get rid of me than for me to get rid of them. And yeah. uh, I've been doing a lot of running with my squad, with, with the father and, um, as you know, Cole. And... I'd always do my 400 starting five seconds behind the group and catch people and pass them to, to, to put a bit put more in. And, uh, you know, funny how training imitates races. And sure enough, with 400 metres to go, I was probably around that five seconds behind. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, you know, last 400, last 400. And, you know, when I did unleash, um, they went so early. It was crazy. I think I moved up on the outside and they just started sprinting. It was a long way from home. And I was like, wow, this is a fair way to go. They're going for it. And held back a little bit, and obviously the rest is the rest is history. There was a lot of early success too, wasn't there? I mean, yourself and 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 Welshie winning in um at Disneyland. Um, I never forget the cover of that magazine with him yeah. between the Mickey yeah. Mouse. Well, I got um, fourteen eighty nine as a as an eighteen year old. Um, yep. and Welshie, I mean, Brad was six. I can't remember where Welshie was that one. Um, and then the next year I got kicked off the team the week before it, and got to watch them go one, two, three, and had a fair bit of fire in the belly for 91 and um, and uh, came out and was pretty fired up to do well. Yeah, it, it was a golden era, wasn't it? It's kind of like that era we had in, in Kona around that sort of 2009, 10, et cetera, with Macca and, and then we had Crowey yeah. and then we had um, uh, Pete Jacobs as well where we just oh, sort of and, had a mortgage. And MJ um, and Miranda and, yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah phenomenal. Um, it was fun going across the cover of that race. I can tell you just sat there with a quiet smug look. Um, I think – there's 75% of Australians in the Hall of Fame in the ITU to date, which shows you how dominant that period was. Wow. Yeah. And then obviously the Olympic experience for you, um, was that, again, like I, I guess such a what, – what a time, hey, when you've gone through that idea of, you know, sort of racing in the early 90s and, and breaking all that trail for everybody else and yeah. then just seeing it grow into an Olympic sport, which obviously now – 
you know, it's it's well and truly entrenched in the Olympic family. But certainly, um, you know, your experience in in Sydney would have been, well, you know, groundbreaking. It was great. Um, you know, summer aren't you come watch the indoor Bessie World Champs in Paris? Um, and he was there watching and talked to me after the race. I won that one and, and spoke to him afterwards, and he was so impressed with the swim bike run. And, you know, we started to get a pretty good feeling there. It was an opportunity. But I've got to be honest, I, I never thought I'd make a Games. I, I thought I'd be finished after 10 years because an endurance sport, 10 years is normally, you know, a, a decent amount of time. Yeah. Um, and when I started thinking about, they said in 94 that the Olympics will be there in six years' time, I was thinking, wow, that'll be 16 years into my career. I wasn't really sure. And I guess, you know, if I had a dream, it would have been for Greg, Brad and myself to all go to the Games because three people who have probably played a major role in, you know, in the world scene in yep. getting us there. Um, but, you know, that wasn't meant to be. Um, Brad had his issues and Greg had his issues and um, I was really happy and fortunate to go. And to go in your hometown, you know, was just, just an amazing, amazing experience and something I'll, I'll never forget. And then... You know, I got to go to the Commonwealth Games two years later in my in, in where my mother was from in England, so um, that was pretty cool as well. It's it's a long it's a long career, isn't it? I mean, you know, years. like you go to um, you know two thousand and two, still obviously, you know, the, the podium and and Commonwealth Games um, triathlon. It's not it's not like. It's, there's no gimmies. It's all the powerhouses were there. England, um, America and New Zealand. We had the best athletes in the world at mm. the time. Yeah, sure. Of now today, they probably may not be the same. But at that time, that was definitely a stacked field. Um, yeah, but Hard it was to- great. It was great. I, um, you know, for, to to be able to be competitive, you know, twenty years on from the beginning and all the changes and the adaption and the body changes to be competitive and taking away my best leg on the bike and making it running races. It, it was really, I, I'm sort of proud that a, I could put up my old man for that long, but two, that I was able to be competitive throughout all that period of time because there's a lot of adjustments. You know, I went, I went to 16 world championships back to back. Like that's wow. a long time to be selected without being injured, sick or broken during those periods. How, how was that though? Like mentally when, when, when you decide to go, you know what, that's, I'm done. I mean, is it hard to transition out to, you know, regular Joe style life, but also what, like, did you, did your body fall apart? You know, do you just, do you let it go and just everything sort of that could break does, or do you manage to stay sort of fairly upright and healthy? It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, mentally, I went from a very physical space to very mental space. I woke up one day at my little bar and I didn't want to raise. And I rang up my dad and I had a coffee and said, I'm finished. He goes, you had enough one, yeah. I never, I've never raced again ever in my life from that day. Wow, so it was very, very abrupt. I, I had a body that really wasn't um, able to put up with the training I needed to do to be competitive, which made it a bit harder. But yeah. um, no, my body's pretty good actually. I, I'm fine. Like I've, I've had no problems like some of the other people. Um, I imagine I'll be beat up when I get a bit older and arthritis <laughs> and that sort of stuff. But so far at this point in time, I've held up really well and. Um, you know, I'm still able to live a really normal life. What what does um what does like leisure time do f- like look for you? I mean, I, when my my middling age group career finished at um at Foster one year, um, mm. and I just said that's I'm out, I'm tapping out after you know putting a number of years in. Um, you know, I, the last thing I could think of be bothered doing is getting on a bike and and riding a land on the road. Are you like that? Are you oh, completely? No. Switched. I've always had a love for bike riding. It was it was the sport I did before triathlon, and it was very hard to give up cycling to switch. 
I was still racing bikes like three or four years into my triathlon career. Um, so no, I love riding a bike. Uh, I'll get out as much as I can. I'm not, I don't ride anywhere near as much as I'd like to or any, anything like I used to, but definitely get out and mountain bike a lot. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I'm out on the road and I still love riding on the road, but you know, it is an awfully dangerous pursuit these days. And, um, I, I sort of feel a bit more safer riding a mountain bike these days. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. We do the same down here. I'm in, uh, the coast down on the Victorian coast and, yeah. uh, we're lucky enough to have one of the best state network of trails now near us where everyone seems to do it. It's just the, the road riding, as you suggest, is uh, is something, even with the, what's going on around the world at the moment, it does tend to be still um, a dangerous uh, pastime. You're um, in a interesting time in administration as well, mm. given what's happening. Um, obviously, you're monitoring this like everybody else in the world of sport. The long-term ramifications, though, of what we're seeing um, around the world, do you think full recovery will take some years off the back of this? Oh, I believe so. I mean, you've got Qantas coming out now and saying the first international flight will be July next year. We're being told the first international flying will be to the Olympic Games. Um, you know, geeking events off above 500 people is going to be a challenge. Membership around Australia in all sports is going to be a challenge. Uh, disposable income for a lot of people, I imagine, was going to be a challenge. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we don't see this lasting five minutes. We see we're in for a marathon, but, you know, we're good at that. Um, <laughs> but we'll adjust the sport accordingly. Um, you know, what we won't do is certainly while my watch is send it broke. So uh, we'll scale up and scale down accordingly. But, um, you know, there's services that need to be delivered across the country and you need X amount of people to do that. And, um, you know, we, we've already been on stand down, pay cuts, force leave and, and everything's you know everything we needed to do to be to, to respond to this to be in front of this as much as possible um it's going to be really interesting to see how membership goes um come july we're very close now to d-day and see what that looks like um all sports around the country will be like budget again in the middle of august so there'll be two rounds of budget this year to see how we're really going and you know we'll have we may have to make some really big decisions but you know what what's really important is there's a sport left at the end of the day yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Obviously, you're at the coalface of it. And as these things unfold, like how how reluctant would you be at the moment? I mean, obviously, you know, there's there was talk even of last week of Texas, 70.3 Texas going ahead before they pulled the pin on it. Mm. Um, in Australia, there's still loose talk around. And again, you're crystal balling here. I don't expect it. You no, know, but fine. are we kind of like end of the year, are we sort of, you're still thinking it's that a, a, a ways for domestic racing or is that sort of a, a pipe dream? Uh, I think we're looking good until sort of Victoria started raising its head in a bad way. Um, yeah, I know. It's just been such a big shock to go that far again. But um, we're, we've had our first race kick off in Darwin the other day. Um, mm-hmm. The club race with 100 people. We've got some races now kicking off with 500. So obviously for us, we, we hope that continues. Um, there's places like Noosa Try that are trying to find some ways to maybe cycle people through it 500 at a time. So race directors are becoming more creative and perhaps ways we could do that. To be fair, a lot of the rules are a little bit hard to decipher in some of these things like outdoor venues. And, you know, if it's a 20K bike course, is it 500 people over 20 kilometres or is it 500 people over a certain distance? And a lot of that information is not really available. So, you know, we're working a lot with the government. We've got, you know, regular meetings with Minister Colbeck and to talk about where we're at, what we need, how sport progresses. But, um, look, fingers crossed it does. We, we were hoping for a one October start. Um, and which is still something we feel like it could happen. Um, one January would be difficult, but still manageable. 
Yeah, where do you sit on the VR racing and the sort of the e sort of sports section of this? I've been casting a little bit of an eye of it. I'm not going <laughs> to. People who listen to this know my love, my my hate love for yeah. it. Um, it's weird as hell. What do you what do you make of it all? Having you know spent that much time sort of out there racing properly. Look, it's it's a way to keep people connected. It's it's not you know it doesn't replace a triathlon. And how do you do the swim? But, um, you know, we, we've certainly had some duathlons, we've had some bike rides, and we've had some pretty good engagement. But but to me, it's not competitive because there's too many ways that people could cheat. Um, it, it's more of a keep people connected, keep them engaged in the sport and give them something to do. We know how competitive our people are. And, you know, so they do like to get out there and do something. They do like to do that against other people. So, look, I'm not against it, but would I do it? I haven't. I've never. I probably killed the last wind trainer I had, you know, ten years ago because I'd done so much hard work on the thing in my life that I never wanted to see it again. So um, it'd be hard pressed to get me out there to do it. But um, I can see why people do enjoy it. It's a challenge, isn't it? And and the challenge that most sports face, I think, at the moment too, is like you said that it's that connection because down here in in Victoria with the Australian rules football given the fact that a lot of local competitions have basically yeah. shut down kids and adults etc they're finding other things to do and that's a real uh, a real trap isn't it when uh when they find something else to do that maybe will take them away and and not um you know put them back into your ecosystem you know, I think that's a bit of a challenge for all sports and it was happening anyway. So I think COVID probably has made that even more pronounced or even quicker than what we were seeing. But, you know, today's children aren't like yesterday's children as far as, you know, wanting to go off and spend all day outside. And, you know, I've got four kids now, mate, and, you know, it's, it's a challenge to get them outside sometime. So, um, you know, it, it is it is a changing planet that we're on and instant gratification is something that people are more interested in than, you know, 10 hours of training a day and, and a race in three months. So I don't think that's going to be something that goes away anytime soon. You watch, you've watched the explosion of esports and the money involved in esports and, you know, it's a serious threat. And, you know, they're saying Paris will be the first esports in the Olympic Games. Yeah, which is, oh, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm old school. That really, that really confronts my, uh, and affronts my sense of what the, the Olympics is about. Um, Talking about that and speaking about that, how much weight did you give science when you were when you were racing? I I, I watch a lot of this uh, sports around the world, and you seem to see the sports scientists now weighing in a lot more than you used to. Um, yeah. How much credence did you give science? And and then when you were training, did you really did it you know stick to it, or is it more for feel, or how did you run? Well, I didn't. I went by feel, and I've I've never had a bike computer on my bike at all or anything. So I'm probably not the bloke to ask. But going into the Olympic Games, we 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 would use sports science more to test how we're going year on year, as opposed to spend every day looking at it to go training. Um, but I, in saying that too, I was the athlete. If you told me I needed to ride at this average, or if you told me I needed to run at this speed or swim this pace i didn't need a watch or a monitor or anything to be able to do that so you know go and swim 110 for a kilometer i know exactly what pace that is so for me it was more about that run 320k pace no problem run three minute k pace no i knew exactly what that was without looking so um maybe i i I, for the experience that i had i probably didn't need to to know exactly what my heart was doing at the time maybe i didn't want to know (laughs) looking at it and going i shouldn't be doing that yeah. <laughs> you're blowing the top off a heart rate monitor so did um do you think 
the the this generation race too little. I, I was talking to someone the other day who was bemoaning the fact that today's ITU athletes are cotton wooled and you know they don't race nearly enough. And they did mention your era um, of of men and women who just put it down almost every weekend. How many races a year were you doing? And are we doing too little with these guys now? Mm-hmm. I was doing 20 to 26 races a year for every second weekend. And, you know, now people do seven. So, yeah, look, I have thought the same. I think what has changed is obviously we're used to race for money. Now we race for points. Um, You know, when you race for money, then there's a bit of an appetite to get back out there and keep eating, Um, which makes people kind of hungry too, right? I feel like there's been that lost. I also feel like there's this perception now, not a reality. There's a perception that um, I came from cycling. So I was quite happy to train through a race and get my ass kicked and not feel bad about it. And, you know, if I come 40, who cares? It was a training, right? Yeah. Now it feels like people are racing less and every race then has a significant greater um, weighting in their head because, well, people aren't going to see me in these races, so I need to do really well in every one of them. Whereas I I didn't want to do well when it counts. Like I don't want to do well when it doesn't count. So... I feel like that art of training through races is probably a bit lost. You know, for us, it was the best speed work you could do to jump in a race and suffer. Um, But if you weren't fussed about the outcome, I didn't leave there kicking stones wondering why I was so crap. I went, that's what I expected, and now I know what I need to do to continue. And I feel like that's sort of gone, you know. And I feel like people are now racing so little that every race, even if it's not really an important race, has a higher importance because there's a fear that people are watching and that's what they're going to take away. And I go, I'm not sure why it transitioned that way. I'm not sure if we were doing it right either, but um, I've noticed the same thing and I feel like it um, probably doesn't give people the race craft they require because they haven't done enough events through their career. Do you reckon social media uh, has got a fair bit to answer for, for that style of, you know, because it sends things seem to be a lot more transparent, you know, and, and as you said, like you're happy to jump in and, and have a race and, and whatever happens, happens. If it goes well, it goes well, but you know that, you know, there's a bigger picture there, but it seems to me the modern athlete at the moment is a lot more accountable. They feel a lot more accountable due to the social media aspect of it and having to post things all the time. But a lot of is them, a- yeah, a lot of them get nervous though. Like, like I had a bad race. So I feel terrible. It's like, why did you expect to have a good one? It was a training session. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I don't think they can get over the mental side of getting their ass kicked. For me, it was just great motivation to go and get smashed and go, okay, time to pull the finger out and get going. So I, do, I guess it depends on your mental ability as well to take those licks and those hits and bounce back. You know, not yeah. everyone can do that. Um, I don't know. I just grew up racing and I loved racing. And that was the fun for me. The training was kind of boring. So the racing for me was a great, and it was, I, I found racing easy because it was only two hours and I could go home. Whereas training was like eight hours and I was tired all the time. So I used to love racing because it was an easy day, right? You get one yeah. out, bang, you're done, you go home. I was, I was happy doing that, but um, it, it's, it has changed. I don't know if I can pinpoint why the mentality's changed. Mm. But, you know, I spoke to someone who's at World Champs and said, how many races have you done this year? They said five. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Not, not it just doesn't, it doesn't seem enough to me. It just doesn't seem enough no. to get your, your shit together. No. No. And, you know, as far as the racing being different, I, I've always felt like we're swim, bike and running and trying to be first across the finish line. And while that doesn't change, I have an opinion on racing. Um because, you know, there's a lot of uh, athletes who have hung around a long time and still been successful, so it hasn't changed that much. 
Um, no, and you, like the way it was set up now with the with the shorter courses and stuff, is it, you know, is it, you know, swim, bike, and then and then sort of it's all just down to the run. Are you sort of feeling that that still holds sway with the way the ITU shaped? It's been like that for a long time. But Lee, I like the like like Lisa Brownlee's get up there and hit the bike and go hard and have yeah. a crack. So you know, and Flora yeah. does that in the women too. So you're seeing that style of racing sort of come back in again, and I love watching that style of racing. So you know. Mac and I made a living on hitting people hard on the bike and, you know, making sure they couldn't run very fast. So, look, sport's always evolving. And, you know, should it be quicker now than it was, you know, when I was racing? Absolutely. Like, if it's not, it's going backwards. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a whole lot of races that us guys have won, like Welshie and Brad and myself and Macca, that a whole lot of people would love to win these days. So that part hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, what are you? You're world champion, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Where do you sit on... And I don't know why I'm asking this, but I just see it keep popping up in my social media feeds. I've got to ask, where do you sit on the bike doping? Where do you sit on motors in bikes? Is it something that TA is looking at going, do you know what, we probably, is it happening? Or is it just, is it all just cloud talk and it doesn't hold any weight? Honestly, I reckon, I don't think there's much of that going on, if there's any going on at all. But um, we do scan bikes at races, so we do that. um, And we never caught anybody yet. Um, I don't suppose we will, but there's, you know, where there's money, there's cheats, there, who knows? You know, there could be somebody out there trying to do the wrong thing. But on a pro level, you know, people are going to hear it. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. You're racing draft legal and you've got your engine. Mate, someone comes up behind me on a mountain bike and an e-bike, I hear it coming from a mile away, right? <laughs> so how are you missing that in a race? Like if someone's got the engine going. Yeah. They're yeah. not solid. Yeah. They make a lot of noise and you know that someone's on an e-bike, right? So, yeah, it just, I think for, you know, for Ironman as well, though, I, I always think, you know, 1,500 people in a compound, they're all just wheeling them in. It's all hidden. No one's really checking. Is it? I mean, but the cost the cost for the checks would be enormous, wouldn't they? It's the same with trying yeah, to check. Yeah. With them. You know, your iPad, we can heat map the bike. So that's not that big a deal at all. I and mean, anyone could do it. We do it. Yeah. And what about the, the doping in age groupers? I mean, oh. obviously getting caught a little bit when they do but is it again is it more just to i guess as a precaution obviously we want a clean sport but we're not really inundated are we i wouldn't think so i mean there has been some cases that i've seen since i've been in charge um always it does blow my mind i just go why do you care um you know like seriously it's 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 supposed to be fair competition like what's the what's the game um and, and but we have had some uh so our testing is working we're one of the only sports in the country who tests age group athletes in any capacity yeah but then we catch people and look bad so you go wow our incentive for doing the right thing is actually looking bad which is interesting but we 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 are committed to doing it uh we're committing to to make it as fair and clean and safe for everybody as possible and we will continue to do so but will we catch everybody no uh can we test at every event it's really expensive no um but we actually put members' funds towards drug testing because we know our people want to feel as though they're in a um, cleaner environment. Yeah, no no argument there. I think it's fantastic. Um, and pushing into next year and whether the Olympics does get the green light, mm. um, obviously, you know, assembling a team is always, uh, you know, the interesting setup. Are we? Do you feel well-placed with the program at the moment? Look, it's hard. Selection policies have become a lot harder with the advent of mixed team relay and having to use the same athletes. So let's say we only qualify two males, for example. 
um, and one of them is a great Olympic distance athlete and one of them is a great um, mixed team relay, we're in for a problem. So yeah. if your best opportunity is a mixed team relay, you've got a problem. Sometimes they're the same person, which is really easy, but sometimes they're not. So the the the, the intricacies around this team thing now and being the same team and only qualifying two and two, then a third person separately is really made it a lot harder on these policies. And you'll see, especially this year, the policies around Olympic selection have changed all over the world because how do you pick a mixed team relay team off off automatic selection? Yeah. Because there's hardly any mixed team relay races you can even do, let alone see someone up and coming. So you, you yeah. can't do the first across the finish line because there is no finish line to do that in. Because you pick the yeah. team to go on the race anyway. So if they do, when you go, well, it's loaded with the people you put on the team. It's not an easy scenario, is it? No, it's a super hard scenario. And we toss this around forever and, you know, and, and discretion also sucks for a lot of people. But so we made it, if you win, you if you top three in, your, in the test event, you're in on the Olympic race. And then and then that person could have taken a mixed team relay spot if we only qualified two and two. Um, yep. and, and, and no one did that. So we made that available. And it's the very first time I think ever that no one's pre-qualified, which is interesting. So, yeah, we'll come down to discretion. It's even harder this year. We don't even know what races there's going to be. We don't know when the qualification kicks off. We don't know when Australians are going to be able to be there. So it is complex. Um, you know, the high-performance team have done an amazing job to keep athletes excited, interested up, you know, because most athletes are sitting around going, well, what am I training for? Or opposite, which is even worse, I'll need to stay fit the whole time just in case the race gets off the ground. It was really hard to sort of sit with the athletes during that period. And, and I, you know, even I had to get on the phone with everybody and say, we're not racing. Yeah. No one's going to a race. So it was really a bit of a thing for these athletes to go, okay, we're stopping. You know, there's nothing to train for. There's nothing to get ready for. Even if we could get off the ground tomorrow, we're not sending anybody yet till we get it all sorted. And I think that's a, you know, what this is, this is, I've never seen this in my career. No, and it. I mean, no one. The problem is, no one's seen it at all. No, all this stuff is policy, not on the fly, but it's certainly, you know, it's evolving. It's, you know, and as you said, uh, you know, before, you know, one state all of a sudden flares up and it puts everybody on the on the back foot and puts the country on the back foot, and you know, no one saw that coming. Um, you don't get to another trial race before the games. Yeah, and then. Can we even get out? That's the thing. Is uh, international travel going to be? And does Japan want people coming into? Um... We have an Olympic Games. Qantas will fly a team to the games. There's no yeah. no doubt about that. Um, a lot of people are saying it's going to go ahead. A lot of fear around what's happening around the world to see if it does. Um, who knows? I hope yeah. it does. I mean, I really do hope it does. Well, I think too, I think just that normalization of having sport back in some areas has helped people get through. But if you see, I guess, the worldwide escalation rates of uh, a lot of this illness, it's it's a, it's hard to think that it's just going to disappear. That's the thing. It's doesn't have well, an I end. Wonder, I wonder if they quarantine Olympics just down to athletes. Yeah. I mean, and that's the option the hubs or whatever they're calling for the, you know, for some of the Australian sports here at the moment. And we can see the European sports starting to open up, but America is at the moment, not in a good space. Um, and how do you, how does sports survive though? How does Olympic games become successful if there's no, there's no people watching, no crowds? Yeah, exactly. And then what do they do with, I mean, you know, if, even if it did continue, what do they do with venues and stuff? If How many times can you postpone it? Is yeah. a massive deal I would have well, thought. Well, it's only once. It's either next year or it's off. 
a lot of infrastructure gone down the, the tubes yeah. if it does head, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge cost for any Olympic city. Um, overall, though, with uh, with your setup with Triathlon Australia, things are moving well. Are you confident that uh, going forward, I guess, that um, once things are open, that you'll get the athletes back and that it'll be, you know, business as usual? Well, I don't know about business as usual. I think it's going to change for a very long time, but we'll definitely get athletes back and going again. Um, there's some insurance issues to cover for. There's, you know, what if the World mm. Series kicks off and Australia and New Zealand aren't letting anyone fly anywhere? Does it still kick off? Do, what does that mean? So there's a few questions we need answered around, um, you know, return to sport. What does it look like? Yeah. How many countries means majority before you're allowed to host a series race or a points race for Olympic Games? How yeah. do you fit into the Olympic Charter, which says no country can be um, biased or penalised for, for whatever? So... Uh, you know, there's a lot of things to resolve that haven't quite been resolved yet. Yeah, I'd be a lot of Zoom chats for you then, uh, just with different people around the world, I would have thought. I don't think I've worked this hard in my life. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> since March, it's been seven days a week and it's been insanity. But, you know, it, there's a lot at stake. So we certainly don't mind. We get passionate people involved in sport that, you know, volunteer their life pretty much to make sure it all goes ahead. So, it's also great to see everybody coming together. And funny enough, I've got a meeting with the CEO of um, ITU in about 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, let you, we'll let you get prepared for that. Um, mate, always fascinating chatting to you. Your career was fantastic. Enjoyed it, uh, knowing, watching from the cheap seats and also now what you're doing with TA, which, um, you know, leaps and bounds and in a time that is uh, really ordinary, um, some really, you know, steady leadership is what's required. And I think uh, you're doing a wonderful job. Thanks very much for chatting. Thanks, Phil. Thank you.